And now it's time for the Fiasco Family Movie Night. Episode 54 of the Fiat. Wait. Same podcast, new name. Welcome to the Fiasco Family Movie Night. I'm Sean Frost. And I remain Tim Leonard. And today we're going to take a look at the 1962 film Panic in Year Zero, written by Jay Simmons and John Morton from a story by Jay Sims based on works by Ward Moore and directed by Ray Milland. Tim, why don't you tell our listeners a little something about Panic in Year Zero. Well, all right. Harry Baldwin, his wife Anne, and his kids, Rick and Karen, are leaving at, oh God, it's too early in the morning, for a fishing trip in California, and this nuclear family witnesses an atomic attack in the rearview mirror of their brand new Mercury Monterey. Since they're already out of the city and the roads are getting overrun by people fleeing L.A., Harry decides that it's impossible to try and go back for his mother-in-law and they should hide out instead. Their car outpaces the news, at least at first, and the Baldwins stock up on food and supplies for what Harry assumes is going to be an indefinite time. Regular information from Connellrad broadcasts fill in the extent of the atomic devastation, which is considerable both in America and abroad. While on the road and onward to their vacation spot turned shelter, the Baldwins get to see humanity turning ugly, with price gouging at roadside restaurants and cash-only sales giving way to joyriding, thrill-seeking delinquents, armed robbery, rape, and murder. While holed up in a cave that nobody unfamiliar with the area even knows about, everyone but Harry slowly comes to grip with the new social order, or rather the lack thereof. Harry himself saw it coming. Karen, their daughter, is abducted and assaulted by a trio of juvenile delinquents turned scavengers and killers. When avenging her attack, the Baldwin males acquire Marilyn, the daughter of a farm family murdered by the gang, and eventually decide to bring her back to their cave. The leader of the criminal trio wasn't around when the Baldwins killed his friends, though, and attacks Rick and Marilyn. In the ensuing struggle, the delinquent is shot dead, and Rick is wounded too badly for the Baldwins to treat him with their first aid supplies. They drive him off to a doctor, who tells them that Rick needs a transfusion or he'll die within hours. Uh, during the journey, after a tense standoff on the road, the family turns out to have been found by an army patrol who send them along to medical care in a safe zone controlled by the military. The end and a new beginning. <laughs> Quite literally, because the year zero is announced over at the end. Yes, and that the year zero is announced by the United Nations by claiming that all previous socio-political activities must stop because that's what brought the world to its atomic devastation. Real cheery movie you've got for us this time, Sean. Uh, <laughs> other than Ray Milland uh, acting and directing in it, why did you put it in the hopper? Well, because Gene Hagen plays his wife, and you might remember her from Singing in the Rain as Lena Lamont. But that's Indeed. not actually the reason, but but it's a good reason. It's a reason, but what was the reason? <laughs> well, we were going to get another Ray Milland movie, and there are a number of them that are are still very well known to draw from. But I've always loved this one, not just because uh, it was the first time I realized that he had ever directed anything, but because it's such an indictment against a worldview that we're seeing take hold again. Because everything that Harry does seems to be straight out of the Randian 
objectivist playbook. He's very motivated by selfishness for his family. Um, very early on, he starts turning on the rest of humanity and segregating himself and his apart from all those others who can bribe. And it doesn't really get him anywhere. In the end, the, the real answer is cooperation. And in fact, a lot of people might have survived that die in this if he had been more cooperative throughout the film. So I, I do believe that Ray understood some part of this. It is very self-consciously a movie about the fission of the nuclear family. But um, it's more concerned about him losing his um, civility, him becoming uh, less of a modern man and and less about like helping others <laughs> that makes sense um he even gets a, a moment in it where he realizes that he's gone too far um and gets brought back by uh by his wife so yeah there's there's a lot going on in this um and i think that it is amazing to see someone who is primarily an actor and an actor who's very concerned about how he appears going into this phase of his career, um, taking that challenge, taking that, that chance to fail <laughs> by directing himself looking bad. And it's not like he hadn't taken chances before. You know, we've we've discussed the thief. Um, one of his first major big chances was, of course, the lost weekend, where he didn't have a choice, but he played an alcoholic against conventional wisdom, and came through in flying colors. Uh, he's played bad so guys before. He won an before. Oscar for it, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, you know, he's played bad guys before. He played a murderer. So it's it's not that it's a unknown for him to be less than completely sympathetic, but to say, yeah, I'm going to direct this. Yeah, I I want to be in charge of making myself fall apart as a human being in front of everybody. That that takes some guts, and I really really appreciate that that he went for it. Oh, certainly. I didn't view it quite the same way you did. I thought it was kind of the American version of one of those cozy catastrophes where it's the end of the world and yet also pretty much okay. Mm. Because, you know, everybody makes it to the end credits. Uh, they even wind up with more people in the group than they had before. <laughs> but... But there's also just a whole lot of ugliness on display. Uh, you know, not everything that happens, not every bad response or uncooperative response is Harry Baldwin. Uh, no. There's a roadblock of people threatening to kill them if they try to get into their town. There's price gouging at a gas station. There's price gouging at, uh, at a restaurant where there's some people who realize that things have changed, but not everybody realizes that money isn't going to mean anything in, in about another hour and a half. Right. But during that hour and a half, they're working very hard to acquire those pieces of paper. Uh, he, he essentially cheats a, a storekeeper out of a whole bunch of non-perishable foods by paying cash on the barrel head before the news gets there. Yeah. And at gunpoint, he promises to come back and give a check to the hardware store owner 
once everything has settled down. And at that point, there's still people believing that stuff is going to settle down. The first step, I think, on his fall from grace, um, fall from civilized man, was early on at the first gas station uh, when one of the other uh, patrons pa uh, punches out the attendant to skip out without paying. And uh, he's, he's, he makes some comment to the attendant afterwards about how awful that was. And the guy goes, I didn't see you helping. And his, <laughs> his response was, my mother didn't raise me to be a hero, not for four bucks. And that's the first step away from society right there where he's making that evaluation. He knows what's going on. He knows that the gas station attendant doesn't know. And he doesn't tell him. He doesn't consider it worth interrupting to make the other, you know, to save him from a beating or, or anything. Mm -hmm. And it just goes downhill from there. Is that you know, just one step off of the path of civilization and that sets him on the course through the rest of the movie until he's doing things like destroying bridges so people can't follow. Which, again, I, I mean, it is a pretty rational choice. I would prefer not to be overrun by people who will kill me and take my stuff. But you're right that he, you know, it's always his first choice mm -hmm. to shut other things down and eliminate possibilities. Yeah, he's very uh, self-motivated. Yes, and the uh, there's a standoff at one point, an armed standoff from the hardware store owner who must have realized something was up when when he got, you know, all the cash that that Harry had on him, but then was forced to accept a check later at gunpoint, he winds up in the same spot uh, near the cave where the family hides out. And there, there's an armed, you know, I have the gun on you and then someone else has the gun on me. And But then Baldwin gives him his pistol back. Like, he doesn't mm -hmm. say, also, now you have no attempt to defend yourself. He's just basically saying all right, we've all agreed that right now we can talk to each other and right now we can get along. And that's an interesting moment because it seems like he's accepting the guy and it seems like he's taking a step toward civilization again. But at the same time, he knows that the guy is in danger because that man and his wife are living in the camper that Harry abandoned because it would attract attention. Yes. And, and maybe on, on some level he's thinking if this guy has a gun, even if Raiders kill him, he might kill the Raiders, some of the Raiders too. And that will be two threats that get lessened rather yeah. than potentially one. I mean, there's I a don't... lot of, of really really sociopathically cold calculation in this film. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I believe he thought that strategically about it, but he certainly did not think that, you know, hey, here's this person who I ripped off before, but who is still approaching me as though we could work together maybe there's better strength in numbers they're in peril where they are bring mm -hmm. them to the cave and yeah if nothing else it's one more person that could go out hunting you know two more people that can be watchers in the night yeah. things like that it, it uh i haven't read the book yet i actually bought it on kindle today but there is a book called A Paradise Built in Hell, which <laughs> is a sociological a examination of human response in disasters and crisis. And it turns out 
that despite all of the fiction that says, you know, assless chaps and dwindling bullet supply will rule the, the post-apocalyptic world, that what really happens is people are social animals and they help each other when things go badly, when that things so go cool. as badly as they possibly can. So I, I mean, I don't have an informed opinion of the book yet. I, I tripped over it while doing a little bit of research for this and it turned out to be on sale on Kindle for two bucks. So Woo-hoo. I have a book. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds uh, awesome. Yes. And speaking of real-life human responses to disaster, uh, back when Hurricane Katrina made landfall, there were people fleeing New Orleans who were met at gunpoint, basically a whole bunch of white people with guns telling black people with nothing, go back to the city that's underwater and covered with toxic crap. You may not cross this path. And there, there's so many moments in this movie that seem to be echoes from future events so many different things where where now 58 years on we can look at it and go oh right that's just like some other horrible thing people actually did yeah uh with with a little bit longer atomic war this could have been like the first act of the story that would eventually be the road yeah yeah if somehow miraculously peace had not broken out um (laughs) Mm -hmm. but i want to circle back to something you said earlier uh because i think it's very true and 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 want to highlight that some more oh please Um, do i think you're right that this is a very american cozy catastrophe because yeah the civil order is disrupted um but there's promise of rebuilding at the end and and they survive doing a lot of of things that are hard choices um but are necessary things for you know hiding their location like one of the things um Harry dictates is that when they're getting rid of trash, they have to go far and wide to bury it in random locations so no one can pinpoint where they're staying. And that's one of the saner things he, he like. Right. I mean, that that does make a great deal of sense. What we uh, don't have. Have you read Alas Babylon by Pat Frank? Mm-mm. It's a small town, I believe, in Florida where after an atomic war, they wind up doing better for themselves as a small self-contained unit that takes care of only themselves mm. than when they were part of the United States of America, which I'm not certain was what the author meant, but <laughs> he wrote it in the 50s. I read it in the late 80s, and I just remember thinking, yeah, wow, too bad a billion people all got you know vaporized or died horribly in the aftermath. My right. garden looks great. And yeah. I don't have to share it with anyone but my neighbors. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We don't even need so, to put a gate on the community because everyone's dead. Yeah, because no one can get to us. Yeah. I uh, it and some of those things. I mean, the the idea that they would bury their their canned food supplies in multiple caches so that if they wound up losing one, they didn't lose all of them. Like there are some some smart moves there. There are some things that make some sense. And it also makes sense that if nobody else was smart enough to basically buy out an entire grocery store, uh, I I did a little currency evaluation. $200 in 1962 works out to over 1600 bucks now. So, mm. I mean, if you had managed to fill a U-Haul trailer with all of the, you know, ramen bricks and canned soup and vitamin tablets that you could buy for for 1600 bucks. I mean, I'm I'm not certain that I I mean it it could well be enough that you enough stuff you need for the rest of your life. It could also be that if the raiders show up, it's enough stuff for the rest of your life and the rest of their lives before somebody kills them for it. Uh 
there's I'm sure I'm going to be referring to tons and tons of other things I've read and and seen, but uh, there's a Comet Impact book called Lucifer's Hammer, where one of the characters spent like they know the comet is coming and the the estimates from the scientists are like it's going to be a you know it's going to pass by the Earth remarkably closely to it's going to pass by the Earth dangerously closely to we think there's a considerable chance it might actually impact and so on. And as that goes on, people are, are getting what's called hammer fever where they make plans to, to survive in the apocalypse. There's one guy who buys a bunch of liquor and coffee because he figures nobody else is going to think of it. And they're going to be trade goods for decades. If he stays around, he makes beef jerky in his oven. He makes, uh, he gets, you know, guns and ammunition and spare clothing and water purification tablets and he loads up his van with it and then uh a chapter or so after the impact somebody else you know not involved in his part of the story sees the van crashed into a tree and burning and and sort of assumes somebody killed the owner of that van for it was killed for it themselves and you know, whatever the last murder was, the guy lost control, crashed into a building, and, and the van's on fire. There's, like, when I when I see this, I'm seeing a whole bunch of other things about humanity's success or failure at cooperation in the wake of large-scale calamity. Oh, yeah. This is not unique in pointing out uh, some of the social breakdown in yes. uh, catastrophes. Uh, but I think that it does it so much better than a lot of similar movies, especially from the time. Yes, you know, I think being very early to the genre, because this you said there was one from 1951 called The Five or Five? Yeah, and that this was a very early entry in the the post-apocalyptic canon. I think another thing that honestly worked for it is that it only had a two-week shooting schedule, mm. so they had to go. You know, there wasn't time to do anything elaborate, so they go to a restaurant on the side of the road. There's a couple of gas stations, a couple of stores, a bridge, a cave, a farmhouse, things like that, where because it all had, you know, they couldn't dress anything up. They couldn't take a lot of time to build sets or anything. Mm -hmm. It just, it looks like 1962. It looks like uh, the the world that a lot of the American audiences would have recognized. I I thought it was just sort of an irony that the thing that that gets them out of L.A. before the devastation was going on a fishing trip. And that they, they then survive by hunting and fishing and and clever preparations and things like that. It is a very American kind of, here's how we get through it. One of the delights of the cast is that the son, uh, Rick, is played by Frankie Avalon. <laughs> so you've got Frankie Avalon looking extremely proud as of his dad as as harry gets more and more aggressive towards humanity yes and there is a moment where he you know he's got the shotgun and he's hiding in a place of concealment to in case an armed response is needed and he's really enjoying the idea of getting to kill somebody yes he was and ang- that, he was upset that he the... missed. <laughs> yes, so, you know, mom shoved the gun. Otherwise, I could have blown that guy's head off. Like <laughs> that to me is the most American part of this because one yes. of the parts of the the social fractures we're seeing in post millennial America is the idea of all these yo yos fantasizing about getting to use all their their tactical gear. Uh, the one that I kept thinking of, I you know, I never remember her actual name, but she got famous being called Glock Mom because she wore a pistol everywhere, like grocery store trips. And, you know, in case the Soviet Cuban paratroopers landed at her daughter's soccer game, she, you know, 
Glock mom was there and had, had undoubtedly been fantasizing about shooting the bad people who were probably Brown <clears throat> to save her kids. And, you know, the story ended how a lot of American stories end with guns. Her husband shot her in the head during an argument and she never even got a chance to draw. Yeah. So the idea of, of, you know, once you have the gun, you want to use the gun. That just, yeah. that speaks to me of a, an essential and extremely damaged and damaging part of the American national character. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's about as flattering as the fact that Americans love a successful bully and then turn on a bully that's had their power broken. And I, I think that in a lot of ways, while, while the meat of the movie is watching Ray uh, at wrestle with his, you know, <laughs> eventually wrestle with his lost humanity, um, I think the most terrifying thing is watching Rick seeing how gleefully he takes to it. Yes. And how excited he is about all of it. And I have to back away from my, my original thesis because one of the things that causes the biggest problem, not just for them, but leads to Marilyn's parents being killed at the farm and the Johnsons being killed uh, in the the trailer is that they did not kill these three hoods when they had a chance. Right. Because there is no law, there is no order in the moment, and they are still civilized enough to say, now get out of here. Yes. Go and attack somebody else. We are now attack-proof. Which makes this movie, in some ways, this movie is the Spider-Man origin story. (laughs) Yes. There's there's a couple of, like, if it was a little more nihilistic, if it was a little bleaker, it could have been, you know, if, if that, if those three guys had stumbled over the family a week later, they would have just killed them all, siphoned the gas out of their car and taken whatever they could off of their bodies. And if it had been months later, they might have killed them all and eaten them. Yeah. <laughs> Which also uh, gives us the, the potential of Frankie Avalon, Lord Humongous. <laughs> he can write the love theme. <laughs> he could. I, you know, if, if he had the steel hockey mask and the, and the uh, leather straps, I mean, he could have been warlord of, you know, northern Sacramento rural fields. Oh, this conversation Uh, is going to pay dividends later this season. (laughs) (laughs) Hooray! But yeah, it's so much of this movie, you know, it is super dark, but perhaps because we've seen so many more things in the the ensuing six decades and we've consumed a lot of post-production code movies that tread Mm -hmm. some of the same ground um did you ever read or see the road i saw it i don't think i could stomach i'm one of those yeah well i saw the movie and i thought you know that was pretty good but it's really not bleak enough to be a successful adaptation of the movie of of the book (laughs) i true fact and in the book, there there's this sort of extended sick joke at one point. They find a survival bunker. Uh, the father and son, who are, you know, dying by inches from radiation poison, radiation poisoning or environmental contamination, disease and starvation, they find a survival bunker full of food and, and toiletries, and they have a chance to finally wash their clothes and things like that. And the only reason they're able to make any use of it is that the person who spent multiple tens of thousands of dollars stocking her survival bunker did not survive long enough to get into it. Yeah, that's a sick joke. (laughs) It is. But there's a point in the book where the father is like making an inventory. Here are the things that are here. Here's what we can take. Here's what we'll consume here. Here's what we need. And at one point he finds like 
a a double handful of gold Krugerands, which were coins that e were each one ounce of pure gold, intended mostly as a way for South Africa to prop up the apartheid regime by saying, we're not selling precious metals, this is just currency. And he sort of looks at the gold coins and then just puts them back in the, the jar that he found them because it's just useless weight at that point. You can't buy anything with it. Yeah. And like at this point, in, you know, at the early points of the movie, cash money still buys things. And there's a promise of a check. Yeah. I don't know how many bank, you know, banking institutions are still around. Uh, the ones that weren't, you know, physically vaporized in the war, their records were vaporized in the electromagnetic pulse. So how do you even declare who has ownership of what? I mean, how do you even start currency back over at that point? This this is a movie that goes up to the brink and then starts to pull back from it. So it's not yeah. nearly as dark and messed up and upsetting as a lot of the stuff that came in its path. But again, I mean, they made it in two weeks in the year before the Beatles showed up. Like, this, this is mm -hmm. a landmark of the genre. It would have been only by virtue of being first, but it's also by virtue of really considering a lot of those sociological conditions and problems. Yeah, I mean, there's... For something that was cranked out for AIP. And I'm not saying that AIP always puts out trash because I love quite a lot of things that AIP puts out and some of it is just brilliant. I, we've covered some, some of them. Oh, indeed. Before. But for something that could have been cheap and forgettable, cranked out really fast, I think the reason that it is still so captivating is that it really captures that kind of 1950-10 feeling of America. Oh, yes. But it's past the 50s just enough that they can show in something meant for cheap audiences, um, you know, for the B circuit, something that says, yeah, there are splinters, there are fractures here. Because I, I think the, the, the audience being told it's moral moment of the film is right at the end while the, um, while the army guys are, are leading them away uh, to safety. And they're talking to each other about how, you know, these are, you know, these are people who are up in the hills and don't have much radiation poisoning. And, and they use the phrase, five good ones. Yes. And after everything they've been through and the things that most of them have done, that's such a powerful, ironic statement in that time context that, you know, here is a man who has flat out murdered people, stolen. At one point, there are announcements over the radio that, you know, by the way, looting is punishable by, maybe punishable by death, and they have certainly stolen. Yes. Um, you, you've got, you've got that going on. You've got, uh, you know, Marilyn, I don't un even understand how she functions after what happened to her, but, um, you know, she killed one of the, she killed the third gang member. Mm -hmm. Um, sorry. She killed the third youth. Um, yeah, it was only three of them, so it wasn't a gang, it's a crowd. It's a crowd. <laughs> she, she killed the... And, and that's another, like, where I think where I think it's still... Well, I'm backing a little bit away from, from what I was saying at the start, of it being a total indictment. 
the reason they get out of everything and back to civilization relatively unscathed is entirely because of cooperation. Because yes. Harry relents and allows Marilyn to join them, she is then there to keep Rick from being flat out killed uh, when when uh, Carl comes back and and comes looking for them. Um, in fact, she you know, prevents anything Carl from doing anything after that. <laughs> Yes. Well, um, and, and you can look at that cycle of, you know, the the trio of, of hot rod youth, dangerous youth show up yes. and get scared off. But then they come back and then there's a retaliation and then the leader retaliates again. Like it's it's basically on a small scale how you start a war is you have the first thing happen and the second thing goes on and then somebody's dead and now you need revenge and. And on, you know, on the macro level, it's countries wiping cities off the map. And on the micro level, it's, well, I guess shooting you in the shoulder didn't teach you a lesson. So now we just have to flat out kill you. That is a really good point. I hadn't even thought of that because I was thinking. Well, of uh, I've, I've been trained to think in this manner because I have a film degree from Eastern Michigan University. Where it falls down the most, I think, is its very 1950-10 treatment of the female characters. Oh, yeah. I mean, after L.A. gets, you know, turned into a cloud of radioactive steam, you shouldn't have your the, the character emoting like, I'm so bored here now. Yeah. No one ever seems to be as terrified as they should be, or even a fraction as terrified as they should be. Well, there, there was, there was some, like, Gene Hagen didn't have a lot to do, but what she had was very, very father knows best kind of role, where yes, she was there to be supportive, but also keep reminding him of how he could be better. Yes. Yeah, you know, she was the voice of civilization um, throughout the movie. And it's important, but it also left her with nothing to do but open cans and wash clothes. And, you know, a, a smarter and sharper movie might have mentioned that that was pretty much what she did before the end of the world. Now the difference is that, you know, she doesn't have electrical devices to help with that. Yeah. Um, and literally the only reason that the daughter Karen is here is to be endangered to make Harry finally care about going and doing something about the the three teenagers. Yeah. Um, so that's that's unfortunate. <laughs> it it kind of is. I uh, it's the sort of thing, you know, in, in other science fiction movies, I kind of joke about it as Dr. Coffee Fetcher. Yeah. Where, like, the woman who has three doctorates is also the one serving dinner and pouring coffee on the spaceship. So, you know, this, this woman who so perfectly fulfilled the role of the, the person you're supposed to hate, who is the plot motivator in Singing in the Rain, like the movie would not have worked without her delivering that performance. Oh, not for a second. Is here relegated to, oh, I guess we get let mom talk now. <laughs> which, yeah. Which is, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, and, and that's another really 1950-10 way to, to handle things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's unfortunate that there are movies of the time that rise above that. Uh, this one did not. <laughs> well, and, and I think almost all of the flaws in it stem from having a two-week shooting schedule and an actor who, the lead actor, was also directing everything. 
I mean, the focus is on them so much. I think there's only a couple of scenes with the delinquent trio where it isn't at least one of the family in the scene, which mm-hmm. means, you know, Ray Milland had to be running back and forth, you know, check the, check the gate, check the, the, the frame, see if that's about where I wanted it to be, and then run back into there, get into character, and, and shoot his scene. Mm-hmm. So, I don't want to end on a downer. <laughs> right. right. Who would want our post-apocalyptic movie to end on a downer? So I do want to say that um, uh, this was the fourth movie of five that uh, that Ray directed. Of the four I've seen, this is probably my favorite. I think... Uh, I think of the other three, the first one is really good and well worth seeing, um, which is called A Man Alone. Okay. And it's a, it's a Western uh, where he directs himself as the anti-hero who comes to town and accidentally winds up having to clean it up. <laughs> Huh. Yeah, it's kind of neat. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a neat plot. Well, while we're talking about other other uh, Ray Milland films and productions, I think that'd be a natural point for us to turn on the projector and do some film clips. The original title for the film during production was Survival and it was re-released in 1965 under the new title, The End of the World. The first gas station owner is the debut performance by Paul Gleason, who had a decades-long career in film and television. His best-known role is undoubtedly Principal Richard Vernon in The Breakfast Club. (laughs) Frankie Avalon and Mary Mitchell play siblings in the film. The actors were born a single day apart on September 18th and 19th, 1940. I guess it was over midnight. I guess. <laughs> I mean, maybe they were fraternal twins. The, the movie never says, but I don't know. The film was released on a double bill with Tales of Terror, an AIP film starring Vincent Price. On DVD, the MGM Midnight Movies release is paired with Vincent Price's Last Man on Earth. True story. First time I saw this. <laughs> was with a double bill of Tales of Terror? Was with, uh, on that Midnight Movies. Ah! Frankie Avalon would go on to make ten movies with AIP in five years. Ray Milland himself was in five films for the same studio. Richard Bacallion, who played the leader of the Lawless Young Thugs, also appeared in the following films. The Delinquents, The Delicate Delinquent, The Cool and the Crazy, Juvenile Jungle, and Robin and the Seven Hoods. On the small screen, he played four different henchmen on the 1966 Batman series. Through all three seasons. (laughs) He's just some guy in a turtleneck with a word written on it multiple times. (laughs) I have the feeling that, you know, if you're a really good hench, another criminal will hire you. The film was originally released on July 5th, 1962, five days before the launch of Telstar 1, and almost 58 years to the day that we're taping this episode. The Cuban Missile Crisis took place from October 16 to October 28 of the same year. Ward Moore, author of the linked short stories that inspired the film, also wrote a 1953 alternate history novel called Bring the Jubilee, wherein the Confederacy won the Civil War. Les Baxter, the composer of the score, worked in the same capacity for dozens of horror, science fiction, and monster movies in the 50s and 60s. He may be better known now for his contributions to the exotica genre, writing instrumental music meant to evoke distant, often Asian, locales. For white listeners. I may have some of his collections. <laughs> I may have picked up a bunch of it for you when I saw it in used CD stores. 
The Saddle Peak Lodge restaurant in Calabasas, California, is the shooting location for an early scene before things fall apart completely. It's still in business in 2020, although currently they are limiting party size and requiring social distancing between groups. Reservations are recommended. I smell road trip. <laughs> I'd do it. Joan Freeman, who played Marilyn, returned to the B-movie realm in 1984 to play Tommy Jarvis's mother in Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter. And lastly, according to Frankie Avalon, the film was a large financial success, making its production budget back in Los Angeles alone during its theatrical release. But Los Angeles was destroyed! Well, apparently whoever was left still had some cash. So as is our tradition here amongst the Fiasco family, uh, we, we asked a question and we got a bunch of answers. Oh boy, did we. <laughs> we said, Fiasco friends, we're starting recording again this week, so we have a question for you all. What's a movie you love that's directed by someone better known for their acting? Bonus points for directing themselves, and, as always, answers may be read in an episode. Tim Girolami wants to list Bill Duke's two films, the Chester Himes adaptation A Rage in Harlem and The Cemetery Club, as well as Night of the Hunter and A Bronx Tale, directed by Charles Lawton and Robert De Niro, respectively. A friend of the podcast, Josh Shepard, seconds that emotion for Night of the Hunter. Jacob McLaughlin wants to tell us about City Lights by Charlie Chaplin and Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Joel Ruggaber also cites Unforgiven and Eastwood's soul-deep knowledge of the Western genre. He's got desert in his pores. He does. Well, I mean, it, it works out in the desert because cowboys didn't have umbrellas. <laughs> Dad Good, who will get that joke. From Attack of the Killer Podcast mentions two movies, Bill Paxton's Frailty and James Franco's The Disaster Artist. Keenan Autry gives us Posse, helmed by Mario Van Peebles. Hannah D. picked a new, brand new commentator, Hannah D. picked The Stranger, where Orson Welles directed himself. Chris Puma of It's Just a Show and Spouter Inn classes up the joint with The Day the Clown Cried the notorious unreleased film directed by and starring Jerry Lewis. Yeah, you know, talk about a criterion wish list. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'd want The Devils or The Day the Clown Cried on on Criterion Blu-ray more. I think that's that's a Harvey Dent coin toss. Mike Bachoven of The Atomic Weight of Cheese likens Rob Reiner's The Princess Bride to an amazing game of charades by a deeply wonderful group of actors. Eric J. Peterson goes with Tom Hanks' directorial debut, That Thing You Do, about the rise and descent of a one-hit wonder band in 1964. Neil Cameron gives us George Clooney's Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Mark Mitchell goes with The American Astronaut, written and directed by Corey McAbee, and covered in episode 22 of this very podcast. Kelvin Hatley hasn't actually seen Thunder Road, directed by Robert Mitchum, but wants to mention it for being the font from which all other redneck car chase movies have sprung. Thunder Road. Dave Thomas, our man in Hemel Hempstead, goes on quite the dare, citing Ben Affleck's Argo, George Clooney's Good Night and Good Luck, the aforementioned the That Thing You Do, the late Lord Laurence Olivier's Hamlet, Kenneth Branagh's musical take on Love's Labor's Lost, and Jackie Chan's police story. Then Dave goes on to mention Anna Biller's Viva, where she wrote, produced, directed, acted in, and did animation for the film, as well as costume design, set decoration, music, and animation. Plus, she had to poke all those holes in one side of the film stock. By contrast, slumming Hollywood star Edmund Purdom directed and starred in the British slasher Don't Open Till Christmas. Bill Smiley goes with the Jackie Chan double threat filmography entries of Police Story, Project A, The Armor of the Gods films, and half credit for Drunken Master 2. 
and then switches things up for One-Eyed Jacks, a Western directed by Marlon Brando by default when several other directors left the project. This movie's getting done if I have to drag the, the megaphone over here and yell action myself. Rich Conroy of Science Patrol, the Ultraman podcast, is also a martial arts fan, going with Sammo Hung, directing himself in Pedicab Driver. Podcast guest Hilary Braley gives us three films to consider. Hope Floats, directed by Forrest Whitaker, Danny DeVito's Matilda, and Booksmart, the directorial debut of Olivia Wilde. I did not know she directed that. Yeah, uh, three films I have not yet seen. Chad Plambeck regrets to inform us that Bill Cosby is one of the leads in Hickey and Boggs, a daylight noir directed by co-star Robert Culp, who stuck to acting for the rest of his career. And lastly, Phil Skeltis is going with the newspaper strip adaptation Dick Tracy, directed by star Warren Beatty and featuring astonishing production design to keep the color scheme looking like the Sunday funnies. Indeed. Well, uh, do you have a film? Well, I mean, we just spent an hour talking about a film directed by an actor who directed himself and is generally known better for his acting than his direction. But have you got another one? Well, yes. It's called A Man Alone, and it's by Raymond... Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm still deep in my uh, fascination with silent movies, so I'm going to go back to the 1919 adaptation of Whoppy the Walrus by James Oliver Curwood. You're which, making this up. I I could not. I could not make up anything as awesome as Whoppy the Walrus. Uh, it is one of many, many, many Jack London ripoff stories. Ah. This is Back to God's Country. And it stars and is co-directed by Nell Shipman. And this is this is one of those where um you know people go to the Yukon and uh suddenly there's some killing and there's being stuck with you know evil man and it's honestly for the genre that it is, it's not as repellent <laughs> as you would expect from a Jack London ripoff. Well, okay then. Like, like there's only mild racism in it, which for that time in that genre is fucking incredible. <laughs> well, okay then. But yeah, uh, Shipman is a delight. Uh, it's it's a fun movie. It's only, um, I mean, who knows how long it was originally with, you know, no set projector speeds and all that. But uh, in our modern times, it's an hour and 13 minutes. So it's a brisk watch. And, uh, <laughs> and you get to see a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but animals in silent movies will get me every time because it's like, you know, everything else changes. The things people wear, the things that they, you know, adorn their, their houses with, their transportation, everything changes. But a dog is a dog, and that's as it should be. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I can't even argue with that. I couldn't even begin to. Yep, you won't find her credited on IMDb because reasons, but Nell Shipman did co-direct the film. So that is that is my choice. Very cool. Or I could go with the backup, just in case, which is mm -hmm. the <laughs> which is the film I thought of a lot while watching this one. Uh, which is the 2013 film, Best Friends Forever. Oh, right. Uh, it was co-written by and co-stars the director, Brie Grant, who's 
well known from uh, several TV appearances and other movies. So that is my call. Uh, I think I've talked about it on the podcast before. Uh, if you don't remember that or if I'm making that up completely, it's uh, it's another very personal nuclear apocalypse where two friends on a road trip um, uh, discover at different times that the world has ended. Yes. Yeah, there's they're not looking when the mushroom clouds are up in the background, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and it reflects a moment in Panic in Year Zero in which the, the whole reason that they know something happened was because of a flashing light in the in the rear view mirror. <laughs> okay, I'll pull over. Whoa. <laughs> and then you get the stretched uh, archive footage of the, of the nuclear cloud. Well, yeah, but I mean, again, low budget, two weeks, they had some stock footage and they had to use it. <laughs> so, do you have a movie by an actor who directed by an actor better known? Good God. <laughs> so, so, do you have a movie? I might. Sure. <laughs> Yes, uh, it's it's the second week of July, and in the second week of July, all right-thinking people's minds turn to the fact that July 10 is the launch anniversary of Telstar 1, the first active communication satellite and the technological ancestor of the reason we're able to do this podcast. Nick Moran is one of the actors from Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels and various other films. But his sole directorial credit is Telstar, the Joe Meek story, the 2008 super dark biopic that was the first movie selected by me to be covered on this very podcast. It is a tragedy with moments of intense comic relief. It is a harrowing descent into addiction, mental illness, and paranoia as portrayed by Con O'Neill. And it is the only movie where we tweeted to people who were involved in it to announce we did a podcast episode on it, where we got any kind of reaction. So thank you, Khan. If you're listening to this, we still love the movie and we still love you. And on that, you know, on that jolly note of, of despair, <laughs> uh, I guess it's time to see which one of your movies, the randomizer is going to cough up next. <laughs> What do you got? Oh, hot dang. It's what you witness got? for the prosecution. Oh, okay. It's it's based on a play by Agatha Christie. It's directed by Billy Wilder. Okay. And it stars Charles Lawton and Marlena Dietrich. Go on. It's amazing. <laughs> I don't know. I'm on the IMDb and I see Una O'Connor's in this. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. Well, okay. But you know who else is in it? Elsa Lanchester. All right. I mean, I'm I'm willing to watch it. I'm always willing to watch whatever you throw into the hopper. I'm just going to be watching with one eye squinted waiting for Una O'Connor to show up. She is one of the most underrated actresses of all time. <laughs> you know, when we finally get around to doing the character actresses minisode, yeah. she's absolutely going to be my first choice. I understand. <laughs> so you have that to look forward to. I do. And the audience has that to look forward to in a couple weeks. Until then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fiasco Family Movie Night. If you like our podcast, please tell your movie fan friends about us however you can. The Fiasco Family is part of the Megaphonic Network, and you can find us at megaphonic.fm slash fiasco, alongside other fancy podcasts, such as By the Bywater, 
which explores topics around and adjacent to J.R.R. Tolkien. We're also at facebook.com slash Fiasco Brothers Podcast and on Twitter as at Fiasco Family Pod. If you enjoy the show, please consider donating to our Patreon for a dollar a month to get exclusive mini-episodes. Also on our Patreon page for free, totally boss discussions cut from the existing episodes. That's at patreon.com slash Fiasco Brothers. Or support the network at patreon.com slash megaphonic. Both options support us, you get access to bonus content, and we can give you an invite to a members-only Slack to hang out with all the megaphonic hosts. We'll see you again in a few weeks on our next episode. And again, thank you for listening. You almost missed him. What happened? Well, the mother pushed the gun away. You pushed the gun when he fired? He was going to kill that boy. That boy, as you call him, was going to kill me. Then that boy was coming after you and Karen. Was that have suited you better? Just couldn't let me. Would you rather see one of us lying dead at your feet? Make up your mind. I could have blown that guy's head off.